That's Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass. I'm Meg Rowley, and on this edition of Fangraphs Audio, I welcome to the program Fangraphs writer Craig Edwards to engage in the first of what I expect to be many conversations about the state of the free agent market, what this offseason's activity portends for labor going forward, and what players might do in advance of the next CBA to wrest some negotiating leverage back from ownership. We do not arrive at a solution, but hopefully we ask some good questions. We also contemplate what, in addition to the very important issue of a strike, we might write about at Fangraphs in the event of a work stoppage. Those answers are coming up, but first, it is my obligation to tell you that Fangraphs memberships are now available at Fangraphs.com. For the cost of a half pound of a mid-tier artisanal cheese, you can support the wonderful work at Fangraphs, including that of the aforementioned Craig Edwards, Jay Jaffe's Hall of Fame pronouncements, Eric Longenhagen and Kylie McDaniel's prospect lists, and Jeff Sullivan's ongoing coverage of Williams Astadio. You may also, for a slightly greater sum, purchase an ad-free membership and enjoy Fangraphs without banner ads, facilitating faster loading times. That bit of business being complete, I take you to my conversation with Craig Edwards, writer for Fangraphs, which begins right now. Here we are recording. It's been a busy and not busy off-season. Hi, Craig. Hello. You're here to talk hey. about the not busy, busy off season. Yeah, I'm busy. You're busy. You've been you've been doing a great job, Craig. I have to say, Thank very you. busy I and that. very available, which I so appreciate. Yeah. Um, I thought we'd have you on because it's been a little while, first of all, since you've been on Fangraphs Audio, and we've been remiss, and also because you've been writing so very many words for us at Fangraphs.com about the sort of specific and general aspects of the free agent market. And it feels like that's all anyone is talking about right now. So I thought you'd come on and we'd talk about it between the two of us and then share those words with the world. So that's why we're here. And I guess I'll start by asking you sort of how this offseason has played out for you versus your expectations going into the year. Because this time, say last year, we were in the midst of a very chilly off season, but I think many of us had the expectation that this off season would be dramatically different because we had a number of very good players coming available at the same time, and we thought there'd be a ton of activity. And then that hasn't quite materialized because of extensions, because of people being less good, because of people being injured. So where do you sit, Craig Edwards? You know, I'm a little bit surprised, but at the same time, you know, we don't know how much money Manny Machado and Bryce Harper is going to get. And I think that's sort of the the big question that's it's going to shape how people view this offseason. I think last year and uh, the year before that, if you were willing to give teams the benefit of the doubt, you had the excuse that there weren't a lot of really, really good players uh, available. There weren't Bryce Harper's or, or Manny Machado's. You had, you know, J.D. Martinez, who who worked out extremely well, but he's also a guy who is a little bit older and can't really play defense. And so that's going to limit his market a little bit yet. He still, you know, got more than a hundred million dollars. I think, you know, he, he more or less got what, what people expected he would get. And I think that even for a lot of the, the late signing free agents, you know, Eric Hosmer obviously got way more than anybody expected. Uh, Jake Arietta came close. So I think that, a lot of the slowness of the initial 
you know, half of last off season. Things didn't even themselves out, but it, it came a lot closer to expectations than than where where things looked like maybe at this point last year. But I think that yeah, it, it has been a bit of a letdown this off season just because there wasn't a MVP level Josh Donaldson, uh, Jason Hayward, and David right. Price uh, weren't good enough to opt out of their contracts. You know, Clayton Kershaw, you know, signed his his quick extension. And so there wasn't as much activity as as we necessarily would have hoped. But, you know, Josh Donaldson is still going to make, you know, close to what he might have made if he were coming off a great season, except he's only getting one year. So it's not really affecting next year's salaries. The same is true for both David Price and Clayton Kershaw and, well, not both, but all three of, you know, and Jason Hayward. So I, I think that it's... It's disappointing to see the slowness of the winter just because, you know, we follow baseball and it's exciting when, when things happen. But it's it's hard to really know what's going on for this offseason until after, you know, Machado and Harper sign. But in terms of, of last last year, I think what we know is that this year isn't going to make up for the the fallback that happened last year you're not going to make up the ground through inflation for salaries and it's possible that uh, they'll be the same or or even worse next year well and i think we even saw you know players at positions of real need for like contending teams you know i think we have there are a lot of ways to define contending team or not contending team these days but you know i think about someone like yasmani grandal who granted like the word on the street is that he is just maybe not a pleasant person to work with all the time, you know, which is like a consideration that I think we sometimes downplay because we forget that being on a baseball team is being an employee that has to interact with other employees. But, you know, you look at that deal that he signed with the Brewers and he was tagged with a qualifying offer. So there was some, you know, draft and money implication there, but like he's the best available catcher on the market. And there are several contending teams that have need at that position, which you, you know, you looked at when you looked at that deal and he's settling for, you know, one year deal that doesn't go that much above the qualifying offer that he was given by the Dodgers. And I, you know, I think it's easy to look at something like that and, and feel concern that when we get into the next phase of, of collective bargaining, that we are likely to face some kind of a work stoppage. I, I guess like what what was your what was your sort of take on the Grendel deal? We'll assume that people forgot to read Fangraphs the day that you wrote it. Just forgot. They were busy. Well I think that if you're looking at Grendel and you're looking at the the catchers that are available, you know, a lot of teams filled their spots early and they filled them, you know, as as cheaply as possible and that eliminated some of the teams that might need a catcher and then you also have uh, sort of JT Real Muto out there, and Real Muto is is younger and cheaper potentially than than what what Grandall would be. But I think what's sort of fascinating in in relation to Real Muto versus Grandall, and you know, obviously Real Muto has not been moved because whatever the asking price is, it's higher than teams are willing to pay. But teams are willing to pay you know an extraordinary amount. And prospects and and teams are valuing prospects more than they they ever have before, and yet they're willing to make a move for Real Muto, but not willing to to sign at least in terms of you know 
what the production is to be expected in 2019, very similar production. And it's a weird thing to happen in this market. And I think that I don't know what necessarily the solution is for Grandal. I think that, you know, when you're looking at what maybe that Mets offer was of, you know, maybe it was, you know, somewhere in, in the, the $50 million range. I don't, I think what, what I saw was that it could be worth up to $60 million. So if you're grand doll, maybe you think, Hey, I'll make $18 million this year. And then next year I can go out and try to get, you know, two years for, you know, $30 million total. And then, you know, I'm at the same place or better off, but it's confusing in terms of grand doll, why there wouldn't be more teams out there. You know, I mean, Jonathan Lucroy signed for $3 million, but I mean, there's no guarantee that he's going to produce anything. And, and the angels opted for him over, over grand doll, you know, the, obviously the Mets, you know, made a good signing for Wilson Ramos, but the, the nationals, traded for Jan Gomes and, and got Kirk and Suzuki. And obviously we know that the Nationals have money and have, have used it this winter. And maybe it's grand all specific, maybe it's catcher specific, but when you compare it to, to deals that, that catchers have gotten in, in the past, it's it's confusing. So do you think there were, do you think the teams are, this is a, a strange sentence to say out loud, but I think you'll know what I mean. Do you think that teams are undervaluing cash? Right, because like baseball players are really hard to grow. Prospects are really hard to grow. Like, there's a reason that teams tend to overvalue them because they, you know, it's hard to make good ones. There aren't a lot of them that are sort of impactful at the at the same level that someone like a Yasmani Grandal or a Real Muto or any of these guys are. And so, I'm always struck when you see a dead market like that because. You know, I understand that teams have designed a system in which there are disincentives for going over the competitive balance tax threshold, although, you know, those tend to be, I think, over overblown in terms of the real impact from a dollar and draft pick perspective. But you can always just spend $20 million and assuming that you are a team with, you know, reasonable draw it seems like that would be easier than going out and like building a baseball player and then sending that individual away because you want real Muto because you don't have to pay him as much as Yasmani Grandal and you don't want the draft pick hit. So you think we're like in a weird galaxy brain phase of baseball where maybe it's like, what if we just spent money though? (laughs) Yeah, I think, you know, the idealized version of, of baseball is that owners spend money because they want to win and the reality is the owners spend money because they want to make money and it used to be that winning was the easiest and best way to win baseball games and therefore get higher attendance where teams make you know a, a huge amount of of their money and because of you know, a lot of different factors. Uh, some of it's that, you know, there are, are seemingly a large amount of teams that are already set to win. And then you also have the fact that teams are making a lot of money from outside sources so that the the motivation to win simply isn't as great. And, you know, teams are looking at spending $20 million and it will win them a few more games but unless that's the difference between the playoffs or not the playoffs, it's not going to win them any money. And because they're already in the the profit area, 
that the risk is is becoming greater than the reward. And I, I think the the most important thing to do is if you are the players or a fan of baseball, the most important thing to do is to make sure that winning and profits have some sort of correlation together. And and right now you don't need to win to make a profit. And and that's that I think that's the that's the principal problem right now. And it's it's been made a lot worse by, you know, the selling of BamTech and every team getting an extra $50 million last year. And, and it's made it so that teams don't have to spend money. And when I say teams don't have to spend money, I, I mean, owners don't have to spend money to make a profit. And so that there's, when you're already making a profit, I think you probably tend to be a lot more conservative than if you are riding the line between making a profit or, you know, potentially losing money. And if you could spend a little bit more money and potentially make large profits, then those are the decisions that you would make. And I think that in the past, those are decisions that teams were making. And that's just not the way the current CBA or financial situation for owners is set up right now. So it ends up explaining the Cleveland situation, right? Because Cleveland winning extra games in the postseason doesn't actually properly motivate them from a profit perspective the way that it would or may have, you know, 10 years ago. And so winning the Central, making a playoff appearance so that you can, you know, say you're doing that while Francisco Lindor is on your roster is what you do, but you're not incentivized to like just go spend money on AJ Pollock or Bryce Harper or any of those guys. You know, you start twisting yourself into knots to trade Corey Kluber so that you can address other holes on your roster, even though, you know, sure would help in October if you had a Corey Kluber. <laughs> right. Tends and to make October <laughs> easier for people if they can throw Corey Kluber a couple times. <laughs> And, you know, if you look at Cleveland's situation, you know, when they were bad, they were drawing a million and a half people. And now they're good, and they draw two million people. And so right. when, after that World Series, when they bumped up attendance $500,000, they signed Edwin Encarnacion, and they bumped up attendance, you know, 500,000 people, which is, I mean, I don't know, $25 million. I mean, that's that's a huge right. amount. And it's the winning that keeps the the fans in during the year and 2 million may not be a lot for a lot of teams but i think it's it's a decent amount for for cleveland and getting that you know those those fans makes a big difference but now that they're at that level and the motivations to get from you know whatever it is 90 wins to 93 wins isn't as great in their particular division now if you look at the yankees and red sox you know, there's probably a lot of motivation to get from, you know, a 93-94 win team to a 98-99 win team because, you know, for the Yankees, if the A's bullpen had pitched well in the postseason, they would have been one and done. And so you also look at, you know, potential postseason profits are going to be probably bigger for a team like the Yankees than they are for Cleveland. And I think, you know, one of, I, I think it was Jason Stark uh, wrote an article uh, for The Athletic earlier this week or last week about if maybe the thawing of the offseason is, is actually hurting attendance. And, and you know, I haven't done any studies on it, but I, I would be surprised if that hasn't been the case. I think that teams that tend to win the offseason early probably get more season ticket holders, you know, right. in November and December when they're getting the renewing those season tickets or selling more. And that's only going to last, you know, through June or whatever, if the team is terrible, it's going to fall off. But 
if you're if you can do that if you can you know create a big push and then win you're you're going to sustain and win big and i think that that's sort of what the the phillies owner john middleton's remarks are about we're about spending stupid money or whatever early in the offseason you know he's sending a message to people who are season ticket holders or potential season ticket holders we're not making a big move now but we're going to make a big move sometime this offseason so right. please buy tickets now Right. Like if we wanted to be charitable to the Padres signing Eric Hosmer, which I guess let's be charitable. We like Dave. Well, <laughs> so the Padres we... were being charitable, so. Yes. A lot of, lot of uh, kindness going around there. But like if you want to ascribe some kind of perhaps more rational motivation to signing Eric Hosmer to that deal, which I think, you know, I want payers, players to get paid money, but also recognize that that was not an especially great deal. Uh, for the Padres, that's that's the rationale, right? That you're you're signaling to a team, a team's fan base, hey, like we're not we're not really good, but maybe we'll be good. And and one way we can show we care about being good is by spending this money on a player. Maybe yeah, it shouldn't have mean, been Eric Hosmer, but <laughs> I mean AJ Preller's literally done that before. I mean yeah. he traded for Justin Upton, and then I think it was like the first day of the season traded for Craig Kimbrell and they had signed somebody else, you know, they, and and attendance went up that year and, you know, then it went back down, but, you know, after they didn't win. And, you know, I think that there, there is, there is some value in that. I don't know exactly how much, but uh, I think that it, it might explain some of, of the lack of attendance. I think attendance are, is, is based on, on winning, but also it's, it's based on the expectations of winning. And right. you know, when you look at what's happened in Miami over the years, you know, they've won two World Series titles, but then they immediately sold everybody off and you don't get the benefit. Like, you know, with Cleveland that they, they drew a million and a half fans or whatever it was, you know, before they won. And then you get the big bump after your your big year usually. And so you and that's because, you know, you have these expectations. The Royals drew more the year that they won the World Series than they did their first year when they made it to the World Series because fans were it just it takes a little bit longer to 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 get that excitement to carry over. Right. So here we are. It's 2019. I got that right. I didn't say 2018. I keep getting it wrong because it's only January. Um, it's 2019. We have two, three more seasons on this collective bargaining agreement. And this dynamic doesn't seem likely to shift, right? Like teams understand now that you don't get great production in players, you know, age 30s seasons generally, and aren't required to pay players when they're younger. And so we can anticipate that there will be some version of this stalemate in the off seasons to come as we go into another collective bargaining agreement. And I'm curious what you know, as we think about ways that we might, you know, the players might position themselves a bit better in the market. You've written some about that in this offseason. Like what stands out to you as a way that players might start to tip this balance back slightly? Because I don't think you're ever going to convince teams to like sign a 30-year-old player to a 10-year deal at $300 million. I mean, you might have a couple of guys that sort of are exceptions to that rule, but generally you know, teams are being more careful and more skeptical of guys who are going to be on the roster in the back end of their productive years. 
So what do what do they do though? Yeah, I mean, you know, when you look at sort of the aging curves, it's not as though teams suddenly wised up. It was that 15 years ago, players in their 30s were actually still really good. And, you know, I think we can point to the obvious reasons for that, including PEDs and also that, you know, mm-hmm. the 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 talent pool was a little bit slimmer. And so, you know, we, we've had sort of an over overreaction almost at, at this point where, so, you know, teams were giving out these, con, you know, extremely large contracts to players in their 30s. They were mostly doing well. And then uh, players in the 30s stopped doing as well. But teams were giving out these contracts for a little bit more. And then all of a sudden you you have all of these examples that teams are now using saying, hey, this is why these these long contracts are bad and why we can't do them. And so, I mean, it it was a matter of, you know, teams getting used to sort of a, a, a newer newer aging curve a bit. And now the players simply, you know, in the last round, you know, they, they weren't prepared for it. And I, I, there's not a lot that the, the players can do, you know, right now. I think that, you know, from my perspective and one thing that, you know, I've, I've proposed is that the players should, should figure out a way to, you know, incentivize members in their own union to not sign these sort of pre-arbitration long-term contracts. You know, if you if you have these players that are signing these cheap deals, you know, when they're 24, 25, when they're only making five hundred thousand dollars a year and they're just, you know, you're getting close to that million dollar payday where you're going to have sort of something closer to a lifetime of security. And then a team comes in and says, here's twenty five million dollars as an individual player. It's really hard not to take that money because that's going to change your life and you don't have to you don't have to worry about you know, getting injured next year and all of a sudden, you know, being out of baseball or whatever. But collectively, those deals serve to transfer a huge amount of value from the players to the owners. And, and you know, when you're talking about, oh, you know, we don't want to sign this 31-year-old to, you know, a seven or eight-year deal. Well, if you look, that 31-year-old might have been a free agent at, at 28 and gotten right. a much better contract if they hadn't given up those those several years of free agency by by signing that contract. And and I don't know exactly, you know, you, you can't blame players for taking those deals because no. you know it's those are those are individual decisions. But if there was something the union could do collectively to prevent those deals from happening, or some way to, you know insurance or compensation, you know, something, they would end up doing a lot better off in free agency. I think that, you know, we're sort of, we sort of sour on, you know, free agency and everything. And, you know, we look at Gizmani Grandal not getting very much money. Well, if he had signed some sort of extension during his arbitration, he'd probably be making, I don't know what, 12 or $13 million instead of the $18 million he's getting. And so you're still making generally more money in free agency than you would if you know you you had you had signed that that deal and then you know that's not the case for everybody but uh it's it's going to be generally true for for most players that that free agency is almost always going to be a better deal than arbitration because you know arbitration suppresses the salaries right and especially if you're getting you know like you said if you're getting guys to hit the market at 27 or 28 versus 30 or 31 like that that couple of years makes a big difference in terms of teams willingness to actually extend you know payroll space but i just don't know how you it is troublesome to me that 
you know, the solutions that are available to the union prior to a renegotiation of the CBA require the kind of, I mean, collective mustering is literally what unions do, right? So in theory, this should be something that they should be able to talk to their players about, but they haven't shown a terrific capacity for that kind of foresight. And so I, I worry that, you know, there isn't anything absent a renegotiation and what we expect to be a subsequent work stoppage that is going to help, you know, players to at all course correct what the balance is in terms of the revenue split between players and ownership. And we as an industry will continue to evaluate these deals on an individual basis. And I think, you know, it's going to be important for us as analysts in the coming years to remember to like take the collective view and step back. That's what I liked about that piece because, you know, when we we figure out how we're going to approach analyzing a trade or a free agent signing, it's very easy to get sort of myopic and just look at this individual player and then remember like, oh, what is the revenue split looking like these days? It might not be great. Yeah. And I mean, the, the thing about the revenue split is that we're talking about, you know, these percentages are, are sort of on the margins, you know, if you if you thought the players were getting like fifty one percent, the owners were taking forty nine percent, and now it's you know maybe fifty four percent owners, forty six percent players. Well, that's that's a shift of of about five percent. Except you know when it's a ten billion dollar industry, that's a five hundred million dollar split, and that's right. an incredibly noticeable. And to to get those percentages back. Um, is I don't think you have to do anything necessarily, you know, completely transformative. You just in the last one, you know, you you should have fought for just a few more things that would have, you know, ma- made it equal. And you know, unfortunately, they're going to have to wait till the next CBA. And you know, if we're if we're talking about, you know, let's say, you know, a shift over the course of the CBA of you know, 3% or something, that's a billion dollars that that just went from the players to the owners. And you're not going to get that back. You can't fight extra hard the next time right. to win because right. the owners aren't going to, to let you win. You can strike probably a fair deal and you can get back to where you should have been. But the losses they're experiencing now, they're just, they're, they're not going to be able to, to, to get back. So... We will on this podcast endeavor then to solve the problem entirely (laughs) because we like to embrace realistic goals. I mean, what do you, as we look ahead to the next CBA then, and we're going to have this conversation, I mean, probably a million times between now and 2021 because this will just keep being a problem every off season. But if you were picking things to advise the union to prioritize, and, you know, we we say advise the union to prioritize because that is the side of this, you know, negotiation that has lost ground between between players and ownership. So, you know, if you were going to tell them, like, here, here are the top three things, you'll never believe what could get your revenue share back in, in alignment. What, what would you prioritize, Craig? You know, I, I think that, you know, if you're looking to, you know, get back, you know, whatever, 300 million, 500 million dollars, the first thing you need to do is is significantly increase the competitive balance tax amount and not make the high end so, so harsh, I guess, you know, it's it's almost dollar for dollar at, at the high end where sort of the Red Sox are looking. I mean, if you look at, you know, out of the 500 million dollars you're trying to get, 
the the Yankees and Dodgers alone have dropped payroll about $125 million over the last two years. I mean, you're you're a quarter of the way there. Right. If you could just get those two teams to spend what they were spending before. And if you were able to increase it, you know, let's say you start at $40 million and you get it increased to, you know, $25 million or something. If you can get four teams to, to go up closer to the cap, that that's... That that's a really big win for you, without significantly changing the the dynamic between you know the two things. You haven't changed free agency. You haven't you know significantly changed uh, you know arbitration or service time or any of that. But you've gotten a lot of that money back. And I think that you know raising the minimum salary is another way. You know if you raised you know the the minimum salary by five hundred thousand dollars for you know the two hundred fifty players or so that have it, that's another. $125 million. Right. And I think that with that, the players need to pay a little bit more attention to, to, to revenue sharing. If the Yankees are getting more money and, and not spending it, you know, I, I think that it's better for the Yankees to be closer to that, you know, that $0 profit line because they're more likely to spend because their, their chances of, of getting that money back by winning is greater. Right. And so yeah, are the Marlins going to waste that money? Maybe, um, probably. <laughs> um, but uh, getting sorry, sorry, Florida fans. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, are the are the Pirates owners going to pocket it? You know, there's a pretty good chance. Right. But if you can shift more of that money, I, I think it's it's more likely to end up in the middle, and it's more likely to make the teams at the top spend more in, in order to win. And then I, for me. I would, as sort of a compromise on arbitration, I would get rid of actually the arbitration process and do some sort of straight salary, you know, whether it's like six million, ten million, fifteen million, something like that. So you're you're putting a cap on some of the higher earners, but but in return, you're really helping out sort of that that middle class of players and getting them a lot more money, you know, because you know obviously free agency isn't the pot of gold that, that it once was. And so if you could get the three to six guys uh, a, a bit more money, I think that that would, that would, that would help out by quite a bit. Universal DH maybe too. I don't know. I mean, that's right. That's sort of a smaller thing. Right. And there's been, you know, maybe expanding rosters require, it would automatically require more spending. Although. Or demand expansion, require... I think would be something that would be very helpful. Right, um, right. Or getting, you know, an expanded roster in exchange. Um, getting more people in the union might help, which, you know, if you had, you know, a 50-man roster instead of a 40-man roster. Those are smaller things that, that that could help out a bit. God, imagine imagine the service time rumor roll we would see <laughs> if we had a, an expanded roster at the big league level of that size. The contortions that would be done would be... <laughs> spectacular because you i mean teams are always going to work to keep guys under team control for as long as possible i mean absent making sort of legislative type changes to the cba that makes free agency happen earlier you're always going to have teams pushing for that there's a reason that they ask for that stuff in the collective bargaining agreement you know it doesn't just fall in there sideways like oh this weird service time thing where did that come from anyway you know that's not a it's not a mistake that gets made but you know, I think that all of those suggestions you've raised are good. I just wonder if the union has gone so far down the road that it's on now prioritizing sort of more, 
you know, creature comfort concerns of veterans that they have the heft to to really do that without pulling the trigger on a work stoppage. You know, I think that there probably is going to be quite a bit of pressure on them to win, you know, and I think that's that's going to be something that will be difficult to do without a work stoppage and no guarantee that even with a work stoppage, uh, it'll happen. And I think that it's one of those things where their goals in the last CBA were for, you know, those, you know, the extra days off and, you know, the less travel, that sort of thing. And I think that the last couple of years, the, the, the players are realizing exactly what they fought for and what they gave up and that, you know, maybe if the if the owners are willing to give up those things so quickly, then maybe they they weren't worth exchanging, keeping the the status quo, which which ended up you know pushing things down uh, in in free agency. And so I I don't know exactly you know what the union's goals are are going to be, and whether or not you know they can say you know here's these you know eight concrete demands that are going to push us forward and we're going to, you know, get as many of these as possible, you know, but if all of the players are, you know, unified behind, you know, free agency after five years or something, you know, that's going to be the big get, you know, but they're maybe not going to get some of the other things that, that are necessary. What are we going to write about during a work stoppage? I mean, we'll write about the work stoppage because We'll have to, and it'll be interesting. What are we going to write about? Well, you know, I think that, <laughs> you know, like, what would baseball look like with a 50-man roster? You know, yeah. what, you know, what, and one of the reasons that, you know, I would find something like that interesting is that, you know, you know, obviously, you know, all teams aren't exactly the same, but we're seeing a lot of teams be a lot more s- similar in terms of how they go about things and how they do things. And changing a bunch of rules is going to mean that all of these teams are going to be sort of scrambling on ways to exploit these rules. And, you know, that is something that, you know, should be fun and interesting. And, and it'll, it will give smart teams a way to sort of differentiate themselves from, from other teams and, and maybe gain some small advantages. Mm. That still doesn't sound like 365 days of publishing material for me. We're going to have to get really weird, Craig. Are you prepared prepared to get very weird on Fangraphs.com when a work stoppage comes? I'll I'll give it a shot. We'll have a very odd split of things, I would imagine, right? Because we will have to grapple with the very serious and important questions of a work stoppage in that labor market. And then I guess uh, we'll still have college baseball in the world. So... I'll give Eric and Kylie something to do. The rest of us are gonna have to get real weird. We're gonna have to we're gonna have to write a bunch of weird stuff. I think that's the only solution available to us. Yep. Or we're, we'll just start the previous season o- over and pretend like uh, it didn't happen. <laughs> oh man, I do wonder. You know, the the strike obviously the last strike is always talked about in terms of the ways in which it both degraded the game's popularity and a lot of that blame i think in the popular consciousness gets put at the players feet but i wonder sometimes about the you know the amount of money like you said the when you think about it it's a lot of money and it 
in sort of stark terms, but it's also a $10 billion a year industry. And I do wonder if we end up getting, you know, ownership ends up getting to this place where they're, you know, cutting off their nose to spite their face. I've sort of been surprised that no one has just come forward and said, oh, fine, we'll give Bryce Harper, who is very good at baseball, $300 million just to quiet this narrative, if nothing else. But they couldn't exactly all get together in a room and talk about that. That'd be against the rules, too. <laughs> no, they, they decided on generous arbitration settlements and stuff. Yeah, they we had what? We had Mookie Betts set a individual season record for a second He's in his second year of arbitration, is that right? Yep. And then just a couple of hours later, we got an up that got upped in terms of a year-over-year gain by DeGrom. Am I remembering Mm -hmm. that correctly? Yeah, something like that. Yeah. And then Arenado is still out there. Right. We still have a number of players who, players and teams that are going to arbitration because they were unable to reach an agreement. Did any of those surprise you? We didn't, I did not prepare you for this question. So if you don't have an answer, uh, we'll have Dylan cut it all out. (laughs) But were there any of those that actually ended up going to arbitration that surprised you? I had a couple. I mean, you know, obviously things are a little bit different this year that the teams have all individually at once decided that the file and trial method is the best way to do things where if you don't reach an agreement by last Friday, then you head to arbitration. You know, I, I don't think for the most part, players and teams don't really love the way arbitration works. I don't think that I was necessarily surprised. I was not surprised that Tommy Pham wanted to go to arbitration, that Trevor Bauer wanted to go to arbitration. You know, know, there, there are some players that, and those are two very different players, but players that you know, sort of are very just intrigued in the process of of how things are done and, and trying to, you know, extract as much value from, from their playing as, as they can. And you don't really fault them for that. But, you know, you're going to, they're going to be arguing over very, very small amounts of money relative to, you know, entire payrolls, that, that sort of thing. But, you know, I do find it slightly interesting that Jacob deGrom got such a big raise considering, you know, the new general manager of the Mets is, you know, the former DeGrom right. is the former client, you know, I mean, that's, that's a lot of interesting coincidences interesting. on that Mets roster <laughs> lately, aren't there? Uh-huh. Yeah. It, it, is, it is very, very interesting. A lot of coincidences. I was surprised that the Phillies and Aaron Nola ended up so far apart, not because Aaron Nola, I think is worth less than he filed for, but I was a bit surprised that the, the Phillies came in at the number they did and couldn't reach some kind of agreement. I mean, that was a more than $2 million difference. Yeah, and if he had won the Cy Young, it probably would right. have been like double, you know. Right. <laughs> so the, I mean, I I think that's probably where the differences are. You know, on Nola's side, he's like almost a Cy Young, and on the Phillies side, it's like, but not one. Right. Um. So. I, right. I mean, yeah, that's. It's just a funny, it's just a funny reality to, I mean, it is clear where you have people who are actually in baseball ops making decisions versus ownership statements, right? Because it's like, well, $2 million isn't stupid money, but it's not nothing. (laughs) Right. You know, it's it's important for, you know, when you have not $2 million. Right. I had not realized before Emma Bachelary brought this to my attention, and it makes it makes a tremendous amount of sense because, of course, the parties to an arbitration have to be present and participatory in such an arbitration. But they're they are required to be in the room. You can't call in to an arbitration hearing. So 
to go to arbitration, and I know we we heard some of this when Dylan Batances was, I think, rightly insulted by some of the things that came out in the course of his arbitration with the Yankees a couple of years ago, but you have to sit there and listen to your boss tell you why actually you're not that good. Yeah. Yeah, Luis Severino and the Yankees also right. not coming to an agreement. Also not surprise. And But it'll be interesting to see if after the Batances thing, maybe they the tone changes slightly a little bit better yeah (laughs) because i can't imagine um you know that that sort of thing if people end up getting paid eventually i imagine it doesn't matter that much but it can't it can't be good for you know clubhouse relations when you get to florida and you're sitting there seeing team officials and you're like oh that guy thinks i suck and then he said so in the press (laughs) yeah and you know when the team gets up there and is like well, look how many wins this guy got. Not very many wins, you know. And and then you're telling the player, well, you need to get more wins. And then, you know, maybe the manager's saying, actually, you know, the wins aren't that important or, you know, whatever. And he's like, well, actually, it is important because it cost me $2 million last year. Right. And, you know, it's probably more more hassle than, it, than it's worth. And, you know, the, the arbitration system just, it's it's a bit antiquated and it's it's not not totally helpful. I mean, I I think that you have to have the system if you're going to have it set up in a way where the arbitrator chooses either one side or the other. Otherwise, teams would never settle and everybody would go to arbitration and you would just let the arbitrator probably pick a number that's right in the middle. But I mean, it needs improvement. And I, I, I would prefer it just you just got rid of it and you just scaled salaries up. Yeah, I think it's a it's an interesting that's an interesting potential solution to that problem. I mean, I'm sure Mookie Betts wouldn't be thrilled with it, but Aaron Nola would be pleased, as yeah. you noted. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like we've solved the labor market? I don't think we did, Craig. <laughs> I think it means you'll have to come back on Fangraphs Audio at some point so that we can give it another good college try. Yeah. Oh, as a brief aside, I'll, I'll say that the owners are doing much better now than they were at the time of the strike. I think that, you know. Yes. You know, it's it's hard to to look back and and remember like, you know, basically every single team has had a stadium built since then, which, you know, massive money makers. There's like a they had a terrible national TV deal at the time. There was basically no local cable money at, at all. I think that at the time, you know, the strike and ensuing lockout, you know, could have been and should have been avoided, but the scenario we're we're thinking about happening in potentially two years is is very different from from the one that happened in nineteen ninety four. Right. Entirely different economic system really than what we saw in ninety four. Just a tremendous amount of money in the system that is sitting on one side predominantly rather than the other. Yeah, it's not great. I mean, I think that players are right to want to tip tip the scale to something closer to balance. I mean, there are other professional sports leagues where the percentage of revenue shared is, you know, explicitly stated in the CBA. Like there's a, a target that the NBA has to hit. And if they don't, they have to make it up in the next year. So, you know, it would not be unprecedented for there to be some kind of you know, actual target that has to be met. We'd learn a lot more about teams' books, I think, if that were in there. 
Yeah. And, you know, the the fight then is, you know, what counts right. as revenue. You know, when the league sends out how much revenue baseball is making, they only include, you know, profits from their MLB AM stuff. And they obviously don't include at all any of the, the BAM tech stuff, which is, you know, a whole other very profitable enterprise. They don't include if you have an ownership stake in your local cable channel. I mean, that's those are things in terms of revenue sharing that aren't included. So I would right. imagine that the owners would say, well, no, that's still not money that the players can have in terms of the revenue share. And so there would be considerable amount of distrust between the players and owners and also between the owners and owners. I, I think the player's biggest mistake in the last round is not getting the owners to fight against each other. Yeah. Once once the changes that you noted when you wrote about the the changes in revenue sharing went through... It seemed, you know, I was not aware of some of the ins and outs of that. And it seems quite surprising that that would not pose a bigger problem for there being sort of a united front on the part of owners. But they seem to have found their way to something resembling consensus. So, well, it's, you know, speaking of coincidences, you know, all teams totally coincidental. I am given $50 million just a short time after the CBA was signed. So, you know. I don't know if maybe that was some sort of inducement for the smaller market teams or not, but it definitely happened. It did. It did happen. It did. I think, Craig, that's kind of a good place to stop. I mean, it's not. We we have not answered very much. I think your answers have been very good, but there just aren't a lot of answers to be had at this juncture, except depressing ones, perhaps. Do you have anything that you would like to plug? I feel weird asking staff members that because it's like, just go read fan graphs. But is there anything in particular that you would like to plug, Craig? No, uh, you can... <laughs> You can go to Fangraphs and and read my work. Uh, sometimes it's at ESPN. You need an ESPN Plus subscription to read those articles. Mm-hmm. You can follow me on Twitter. What's That's, your Twitter, Craig? It's at Craig J Edwards. That's Craig's Twitter. You only want nice tweets, though, right? Uh, that, that'd be ideal. Or at least polite ones. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, that has been Craig Edwards. He has told us many things about the labor situation. We'll endeavor to continue to solve them at Fangraphs. And this has been Fangraphs Audio. Thank you for joining me. Thank you. It's been a pleasure.